Bandwidth for GS Party is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Welcome to GS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JSPartyFM. And now on to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to JS Party. We're to party every week with JavaScript. We're back. I'm Michael Rogers. I'm Rachel White. And I'm Alan Sampson. <laughs> yep. And uh, Rachel and I are back from uh, from a nice little vacation in Europe. Um, if you uh, if you didn't like check out uh, the episode where Yayquery took over, definitely go back and listen to that one. That one was so good that um, Rachel and I were actually fired. I got a text uh, from Adam Stachowiak while while I was in Europe, but just said you're fired. Um, and then it turned out that they can't do it. Uh, they can't schedule it for another nine months so we're, we're <laughs> filling in now for them <laughs> until uh, until they can come back around all right let's jump into it okay so we're going to talk about actually using uh es6 es6 and es7 uh features new language features with and without compilers and some of the trade-offs and stuff like that so no one uh, about years now is it yeah, oh, yeah 2015 and I don't. I, I think that we should just talk about specific features rather than what bucket they land in, because they actually get implemented sort of out of order anyway. Right. So, huh. Rachel, what what features are you using that you that you've been enjoying from the the new language stuff? I'm not. <laughs> You're not write any ES6. No, I mean, the only thing that I've I've used really, because like since I don't write production code, nobody tells me what to do, so I kind of just do what I've always done. So like I've I've worked with some things that have like the new variable naming and stuff like that. But that's really all that I've dipped my toes in. And what what is the other thing? Like let is in there? I don't know. Enlighten me. Let's been there forever. I think like okay. the big ones for the big ones for me have been uh arrow functions. Yeah. And yeah. Template literals. Yeah. The arrow functions are super cool and I totally get that it's like the the it helps with like readability so much. But like I I'm still stuck in that mindset of like forgetting to use it. And I feel like if I'm going to incorporate all of the new type of things, I'm gonna have to like enforce it to strict in my like code linting. But mm-hmm. other than that, like I'm not actively like going out of my way to use it because nobody tells me what to do when I write code. Uh, I, 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 so let me jump in. I, I think I disagree that um, it it makes code more readable. I often am looking at like typed and arrow function uh, JavaScript. So like there are mm-hmm. types in there and then there are arrow functions and people are using like implicit returns and stuff. And I look at it and it does not look recognizable to me. Like I, I'm smart um, enough to like figure it out or whatever, but I can no longer like scan it the same way. You, I don't know. It's just a skill that, that you I can mean, do. I'm lucky enough that a lot of the stuff that I work on is fairly small. So when it's much smaller scale, I think it's readable, but I could totally get if you're looking at like larger systems where you would like be scanning through a lot of lines, it would be kind of hard to pattern match. Yeah. It, it yeah, certainly I mean, like encourages uh, unnamed functions for, for one thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. I do like, I don't like anonymous functions. I like to try and name everything if I can. I don't know. I mean, I, 
they've gotten so small and so kind of easy to use that I'm able to use them in ways that you you wouldn't use functions before because it would just be too verbose, right? There, there's a couple um, like libraries that I've written for um, like templatized uh, HTML and using functions inside of a template literal and stuff like that. Like that would have just been too verbose beforehand, right? Sure. Um, and and I think I'm I mean I was certainly one of those people like I mean you you can dig up me saying this that like the problem with arrow functions is that, that it's just a bunch of extra semantics that you have to keep in your head which is true like it it is um, and like to your point Alex it's certainly not as easily readable as the word function it's pretty clear what that is <laughs> this arrow thing sure. like could be anything right and so you, it is more semantics you have to keep in your head like like any other language rule. Um, but the net the effect semantics, of them, the semantics. Yeah. So just to, sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. The semantics are, are are maybe easier because it's just like it, it's. Um, we talked about this a little bit while you were gone. Um, it is uh, kind of uh, just literal scope uh, of of the variables. There's no bound. Um, uh, it's just lexical scope of of variables. So you can reason about what a variable or what this is much more simply because it's impossible for it to be anything but lexical lexically bound so so, to some degree like you can forget about some things that functions add and then to another degree like it's hard to scan maybe especially with implicit returns yeah yeah yeah. i was just gonna say whatever sort of complexity they they take take out of the pool by by uh by not having this um they probably add it with the implicit return stuff but it, so i'm I, I don't know if you saw this or not but there was a uh, a post that somebody did where uh he was essentially saying that his his style guide now is that he no longer uses the function uh keyword ever so he doesn't use old style functions anywhere um everything is arrow functions um and classes um, have like a, a different new function syntax for properties. And so he uses those when, when you would have traditionally used um, functions for any kind of prototypal stuff or, or co- referencing this. Um, and I'm, I'm this, curious. Is this just for like personal projects or is this like in practice in his job? Or you do not I know? Think, I think both. I think both. I mean, he's certainly advocating it to other people, which I assume, you know, would also be for right. production use. But I, I think that the argument that this actually can reduce complexity if you, stop using older syntax is is one that comes up a lot like people talk about yeah you know like like eventually the language does get simpler if we can stop using some of these older forms um yeah. and this is this is certainly you know somebody advocating for that so the the primary rift i had with the person at my company who, who felt the same was that i was thinking of functions as the default and arrows as the sugar and he was thinking of arrows as the default and functions as the sugar because arrows are other than in implicit returns uh, are simpler in the sense that they can't be bound. And so he's like, well, why would we use the more complex one that can have all these weird binding situations instead of using the default arrow functions, which are lexically bound? And so you always know. And so like, for me, an unbound function keyword is fine. Like an unbound function is fine because like, I'm just not using this inside of it. But for him, it's like, why would you use the thing that could be bound when you could just use the thing that's always lexically bound? And, and so it's an interesting like perspective of once you kind of switch over, like seeing the arrows as the default and the function as like this thing that can be different. The, the problem is that, so 
So even uh, I forgot who you said does this, but uh, the the class um, functions. If you just use the syntax inside classes, where you do uh, you know a class and then you just tab inside the the blocks and you do function name, um, that is not an arrow function. It's not lexically bound. Um, you have to do function name equals open parens uh, arrow function function in order to get a lexically bound. Uh, uh, function in there so it's actually like you kind of have to modify some of that syntax and then like if you decide okay i'm always going to use that syntax like the constructor inside of there can't be listed like that you have to do the constructor the old way and so it could be bound uh but you can't find well, constructors well, then, and, and then like a whole bunch of things like that get, start getting weird well in, in the case of classes though you you often do want to reference this though like you, you have a use for that i think that what he right. was saying was that but, we, we can take the function keyword out of it at least and then we can not have this ambiguity yeah no so what i'm saying is that uh if you use arrow functions the, the functions can't be rebound um it's it's guaranteed to be lexically bound whereas if you use just the class syntax it mm -hmm. more mimics using the function keyword and then yep. using this will default to the right thing probably to to what you want but uh, pulling it out, like if you just use an instance, like kind of like a static function, like this mm -hmm. can change very quickly to window. Uh, like all those types of problems start to show up again. It's just sugar for, um, you know, uh, prototypal properties on on an object. So, so th there are still gotchas if you use the class syntax. Like you could still go further and say, I still want to use arrow syntax inside of my classes. Uh, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I guess you. Could take and I, and I think if, if you are going to say we require arrow functions everywhere they can be used, you should also require them in classes. To, so rather than saying like function name, open paren arguments, and then brackets with the function, you should say function name equals open paren uh, uh, fat arrow brackets, um, if that but kind of kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that the, that the point that any of these people are trying to make, though, is to be zealots about arrow functions. I think the point that they're making is that we can deprecate the use of the function keyword and just rely on these new rules. Yeah, I and disagree. Then we, and then we, get, then we get out of a lot of, like, ambiguity if we're just using the new rules around um, around yeah, classes. I, and, I think and I disagree functions. on what those people, at least the people who I've talked to who are doing this aren't necessarily, they're, they're not doing it just because they think it looks better or it's smaller or it's more streamlined or anything like that. They're explicitly doing it because of the lexically bound uh, ambiguity, like problems go away. And so you end up with a program that only has lexically bindable functions. Um, and so it's important to do it everywhere, even if the syntax is old, like if there's some way to use the old, the, the old function syntax and then just say oh this is a lexically bound function like they would still be cool with that it's not about the fat arrow it's about the semantics of how the function kind of exists and how it can change and what context it can run in and uh it's taking away the foot gun of this changing out from under you i think is, is the goal okay so transitioning a little bit like we're, we're talking about all these features and and i assume that we're talking about using them well, actually, my assumption is that we're talking about using them without a compiler, and I think that may not be your assumption. Um, I'm wondering, like, so where where can you where do you have to have a compiler down to ES5 to use this stuff right now? Like, where like like are there IoT devices that have older V8s that we have to worry about? Are there 
Um, like which browsers like still don't support this kind of garbage? I mean, we're yeah. we're not supporting IE six anymore, right? Like we're done yeah. with that. That kind of like IE nine doesn't IE ten eleven get into some of the territory, but still are missing quite a bit. I think the problem is that um, uh, and Babel's perfectly capable of doing this. It's just somewhat uninteresting to try to solve unless there's a, a, a performance problem. But if you think about your application, there's probably, let's say you're using 10 new ES star features. Um, and one of them is like object spreads, which is like totally going to get in the language, uh, but isn't in any browsers or node or anything like that. It's, it's just like an obvious thing that we're going to do. And it's really useful uh, to be able to much like an argument spread or an array spread, you can do the same thing into an object. It kind of like finally solves the uh, jQuery extend uh, thing. Uh, so does object assign. But the problem is that you're already compiling with Babel at that point. Uh, and so you're saying like, well, I want all these features in Babel. And you could just say, well, I just want object spreads and I know the rest will. But at the point where you pull in a compiler, you're like, well, I might as well just go down to ES5. Uh, and I think that's the common way. It's just let me pull in all of everything that I know I need to compile to um, because I want to, to just work everywhere. And then people don't think about it too much past there because there isn't too much of a hit uh, for, for See, many things. This isn't my thinking at all, though. And like, I don't, I don't know if, if Rachel feels similar to this, but like, I don't use a compiler like ever um, for like down to a different language. And so like, yeah. I, I only use I, browsers that support this. And like, if it's a feature that isn't widely available, like, I just don't use that feature. Same. I don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like, think like, you guys are definitely in the minority. I don't, I, I don't think like, that seems a little nuts to me. Like, I, I really enjoy like line numbers and like just like a lot I mean, of the simplicity of not having it. Uh, well, yes, yes, yes. Th th provided that you have all that tool properly, and 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 it can be kind of a pain. I, I mean, like, look, if you're going to use Babel, then you're already in this boat. Or sorry, if you're going to use like React, you're already in this boat, right? So there, there's yeah. enough people like using frameworks or other upper level tools where the compiler is just part of that tool chain already. But mm -hmm. like, I'm certainly not going to add Babel to my Node project in order to use object spread. Like, that's not going to be. That, that's just like I don't understand that thinking, and I don't think that a lot of people do that. I think a lot of people do that. I think it's pretty common these days to just start your project writing in the new thing, even if it's compatible with like the latest browsers or the latest whatever. Your, and still your pure Node it. module, your pure Node module, you're you're gonna like already yeah. have a compiler. At the I ready. think I think Node is is a little bit less this way because um, because there are different norms there. Um, but I think even in those cases, it, it's somewhat common. Uh, to, to see yeah sure like i wonder how many iot projects rachel has seen where they're compiling things with babel <laughs> <laughs> not not many that's for sure <laughs> yeah i, I mean I, I i think iot projects in the grand scheme of the amount of javascript that's being written are a small percentage and and that doesn't make them unimportant True. or anything like that i'm just saying that that I think the average JavaScript developer these days is working in a framework and those frameworks somewhat already introduce <laughs> enough compile steps to where it's just a non-issue to, to add this. So if you're working in Vue or you're working in React or you're working in Ember, or you're working in Angular, you're working in any of these things, you have a Babel-like uh, compiler already uh, in your stack. And so adding yeah. object spreads is, is just like a decision you can make or not. 
So I feel like the most of the features that I have used and interacted with would have been like things that we touched on already, you know, const, let, arrow functions, um, some of the, the way that they're doing class definitions and stuff like that. I guess this is about going to be the same thing that Michael was just about to ask. Are there any like features that you aren't using? Like which ones do you two think are the ones that people aren't really like, um, you know, fully embracing or trying out yet? Uh, I mean, I guess there's two buckets there. Uh, ones that people aren't trying out yet because they're bad and ones that people aren't trying out yet because uh, they aren't fully aware of them or they aren't fully powerful or things like that. And I guess there's things that go in both buckets. That, I mean, a lot of the stuff we use in Babel and the stuff that we're compiling down to is stuff that isn't even finished getting through ECMA and will change. Like modules is something that everyone uses and like a lot of the semantics of how modules load like haven't been known for a really long time and that's kind of the driving force behind the problem with getting proper modules into Java, into into Node uh, specifically because we've been doing it slightly wrong for so long because we kind of mm -hmm. just wanted to compile ahead of time that now there's a clash in the semantics of how it should really work and we're going to have to kind of work around that problem uh, for a little while. Yeah, I mean, w without getting into the specifics there, there's actually a, a particular point where the spec sort of implies but, but, does, but does not define how things are supposed to work. And Babel made a decision about how they work at one point um, and we're not going to be able to support that. And noted, in fact, that spec committees said that we should not do that and go that route because of some of the other trade-offs that it would have to make. Um, so yeah, there's just, there's stuff that until they're, you know, that one's even out. Like that one is actually in the spec. We just haven't had enough implementations to know what some of these like really, really nitty gritty details are. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, like you're, you're, you're by definition kind of on the bleeding edge if you're using features that aren't even actually in the browser yet. Modules are in the browser now, though. In one browser, yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah. So what, what features are you staying away from, though? Like, actually staying away from? The ones that I don't need. <laughs> <laughs> I think proxies are a terrible idea and that nobody should use them. <laughs> They're just a yeah. giant performance bottleneck. <laughs> proxies were they? a really good idea for, like, a hot second. It seemed like a really... <laughs> solid solution to a thing that everyone was trying to solve at the time and then like we found different ways to we found better ways to solve those user land problems and then proxies became this um thing that that made a lot less sense namely like the get set type problems like the way that ember used to work where you had to do dot get and dot set like there was a world where proxies in the future could do more getter setter type stuff to where you could just say you know like my object dot foo equals five and then that would be the same as saying my object uh set foo five or whatever that it would happen to do like it would need to do that because we need to run functions when things change in order to re-render uh but now with like virtual doms and and all that kind of stuff like the the community moved on to different techniques for uh solving that problem that are a little less magic um so i think proxies kind of fell there are there are certainly like use cases but i think they're pretty pretty small generally if you're using proxies you're hacking the crap out of uh, a closed library these days yeah i remember similar features are in python meta classes and the the guidance for meta classes is 
don't use meta classes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, other other things I'm trying to think. There are definitely like proposals that I, I think it's it's less about. I'll use anything that's kind of in the language. Like they're pretty conservative. I think about by the time it gets in the language, everyone's already been using it for so long that it's not even that cool. Uh, but there are definitely things that are you know level two in the spec that uh, I don't think are ever going to make it. Things like uh, you could turn on stuff for like immutable types or, or even like uh, one thing I don't use is decorators. Um, I am skeptical that decorators are going to go the distance. And so I've been avoiding uh, decorators. I, I, I don't have any data. I'm just waiting till they're like more of a sure thing, I guess. Uh, if that no, makes sense. I used them when I was a Python programmer and my general feeling is that they complicate more than they simplify. Um, yeah. There, there are some cases where they're like, I think the authentication case for decorators is so pretty all the time. It's just like, this is an authenticated function and just like magically makes auth something that makes sense uh, like per, on a per function basis. And so like, that's such a cool use case for decorators that, that it makes you want to use them a little bit more. But, um, but I, I think they have a place and I know the Ember community uses them a little bit. Like there are also people in the React community uh ember concurrent uh uses decorators to do um some of their stuff and i think that it's a it's a decent use case for it but in general um i haven't seen a huge need for them even though i'd probably use them once they made it into the language once they became more of a first class supported thing by the libraries i was using i don't know i'm i'm more on the functional programming side of things and so i just don't <laughs> i don't like encouraging people to write more classes sure i think i, I think uh I mean, that's a different conversation, but uh, there there are kind of two properties that I, I think the I'm pretty happy with the React worlds. Uh, there, there are function components and some people are, are very big into that, but I actually don't mind cl the class components. But then all functions that are a part of it are um, like pure functions and uh, like that kind of stuff, kind of a mix of some of the better parts of each of the of the patterns to where you don't have crazy side effects and you don't have these different things and uh but then your kind of view layer is a little more readable than just you know a function that calls a function that sends half of its arguments to another function uh so i don't know i think there's a middle ground there that, that's nice yeah i think that we've we've hit a nice little spot here <laughs> sure. um <laughs> i think we can take a short break uh, when we come back, we're going to get into Create React app. First sponsor of the show today is our friends at Sentry, helping you to find and fix your errors in your applications. You can start tracking your errors today totally free. They support React, Angular, Ember, Vue, Backbone, and Node frameworks like Express and Koa. You can view actual code and stack traces, including support for source maps. See the errors URL, parameters, and session information, and even prompt your user for feedback when you have front-end errors. Head to jsparty.fm slash sentry. Start tracking your errors for free today. No credit card required. Get off the ground with their free plan, and when you're ready to expand your usage, simply pay as you go. Once again, jsparty.fm slash sentry. And now back to the show. We're going to get into some new features that just landed in Create React app. Um, it actually seems like a pretty substantial change. Uh, we've talked about Create 1.0. 
Yeah, yeah. We we talked about Create React app on the show before, but um, Alex, why don't you give us a little bit uh, of that backstory and a little bit about this in less than twelve minutes? How about that? <laughs> in less than, that's tough. That's that's an Alex problem. Uh, all right, Create React app uh, is very similar to Ember CLI. If you've uh, ever used Ember, um, I think uh, Angular has its own CLI tool as well that I don't know the name of. Uh, but but pretty much the the goal of Create React App uh, is to kind of manage all of the things that Michael's always complaining about for you. That way, you don't have to care about them. Um, so, if you like want to color completely in the lines uh, of the like suggested React world set of tools and Webpack uh, for that matter. Well, yeah, that it's included in the suggested um, React world set of tools. Uh, then you can use create react app and the idea is that you can say create react app to do and then you have a react app for to do's that automatically compiles your es6 uh, has a way to do css in javascript and uh, does error handling and building and all sorts of the different things that you would normally have to set up manually one by one all is this one big kind of package. It's kind of a template to get started with a project. But uh, one thing that is in for and the history is interesting. It was like a, a hack weekend project because React was one of, a lot of the feedback React got was that there's no kind of baseline of guaranteed supported tools that work together. And this is kind of like an answer to say like, well, this stuff all works together. The... And then, it, so it was kind of like a hackathon one day thing, and then it's grown uh, up a lot um, since uh, since then. And the, this is the 1.0 release, so it's uh, been in use by a lot of people already. Um, but now, now it's gone 1.0, and and so the idea is uh, you have to stay within their uh, within their like. So even like it configures your ESLint, it configures your Webpack, it configures your CSS, it configures your Babel, all those different things. And th that configuration is even hidden from you because if you change it, then it's hard for them to make the assumptions that they can make. And so you can either choose to use Create React App as this thing that you can constantly update because you're staying within the coloring lines, or you can use Create React App to like generate a thing and then you can uh, do what they call ejecting. And so you can eject from Create React App as soon as you create your app It'll pull all that configuration into kind of your core directory or where it would go if you wrote it yourself. And then you can just edit it and all that stuff. But you can no longer kind of pull updates from Create React App uh, in order to like get automatic updates, if that kind of makes sense. Um, so th does that make sense as kind of a background? Um, um, makes sense to me. Cool. Uh, so like in general, I found that like with the things at work that are difficult uh, to like uh, do, if I want to do a create React app, I have to eject pretty fast um, because we need to change one ESLint thing in order to work with our build servers, and it's like oh, that kind of stinks. Uh, and and that's like part of the deal. It's like if you can't do it, then you just don't get the updates. And and sometimes that uh, is not a problem. In general, like I haven't kind of missed. I haven't like paid enough attention to create React app to to get mad when they have an update and my thing can't update with them. But this release would be maybe a good example of something that's like, well, if you stayed in the coloring lines, this would be a really nifty change. So we can go through the changes in 1.0 um, if, if you all want. 
Sure, sure. I, my my first question is that it so it says something something in the order of like okay, you can use import and export semantics now without actually compiling down to common JS, but it's compiling down to something, right? To stick it into the no. browser, it's not it's not relying so, on the browser's support yet. Uh, so it could. Uh, so the, the idea is uh, this is a. <laughs> so I think you skipped ahead. Web, Webpack two is a part of. Uh, create React app now. So it used to be based on Webpack 1. Most people are on Webpack 1. Webpack 2 is pretty new, and it's a, a pretty, uh, it's a larger departure than a lot of 2.0s would be, and so it's going to take some work uh, to get people moved over. But one of the features of Webpack 2 is that um, it, it supports uh, imports and exports natively, like, at all, as part of its parser. Uh, and so before, if you gave Webpack 2 uh, imports and exports ES6 modules, and you did you weren't using Babel, nothing would happen. Uh, like it would break uh, because it wouldn't understand that. So what the steps would be it would be compile with Babel to uh, you know require statements and then pass it to oh, Webpack, uh, okay. and then Webpack could understand the require statements. But there are some features in uh, ES6 modules like uh, static analysis and stuff like that that. Uh, are more guaranteed in ES6 modules. So they were able to say like, all right, we no longer care if you pass us require or um, uh, these things. And so you may skip the Babel step in order to pass imports and exports rather than uh, first compiling down to Webpack. And then it can use like the proper static analysis that is guaranteed as part of ES6 modules in order to do better things uh, with regards to bundle size and tree shaking and dynamic loading and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's more of a, what does Webpack understand rather than you still may, well, you still more than likely at the end will compile it down to, re to require statements that like from whatever library in order to, to bundle it all together. It's like part of what Webpack does, but it natively understands imports and exports now. Uh, and that is now included automatically in Create React App which means that if you were coloring in the lines before, all you have to do is update your Create React app uh, kind of instance, the, the version, and you were automatically upgraded from Webpack 1 to Webpack 2, which is kind of the amazing thing is that, like, whoa, that was a uh, pretty big upgrade um, from, from Webpack 1 to 2 that a lot of people are going to spend a lot of time rewriting their Webpack configurations, and it was free because you stay within the lines. Someone else, like, worked on the hard parts of that. Which is cool. It's nifty. It's a good idea. Does that make sense, Michael? Yeah. It's just, it's, yeah, I'm just constantly sort of reframing how to think about Webpack. I think that for the longest time, I think everybody kind of thought of it as like this compile tool. And, but in actuality, it's more like a platform onto itself. Like it has a lot of primitives, like a, like its own module system and with multiple, with more types and things like that than the node does. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of reframing how to think about that. Yeah, it is an interesting tool. It, like, it kind of crosses over a few different boundaries of old tools that we've had. And so, if you think about it, it as a grunt type thing, you'll think about it as a grunt type thing. And if you think about it as a babble type thing, you'll think about it as a babble type thing. But it, like, it kind of is more of a a piece of glue. Um, but then it still needs to understand things like ES6 modules natively in order to do. Uh, tree shaking and things like that. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting project. So I was going through and like reading the whole what's new in the React 
or create React app article. And a bunch of it made sense to me, but there's some things in here that I've like never heard of and I have no idea what they are. So uh, one of those being Jest 20. Could uh, yeah, that's someone... a React specific thing. Jest is the test running framework for oh. React. It's the, so it's just they've upgraded Jest, um, uh, I guess, two versions that used to be Jest 18 or something like that. There are like testing uh is we should do a whole episode on testing sometime in the future but um one of the hardest parts about testing in the past if if you guys have done testing uh, like at scale for a web app which may not Mm -hmm. be the case uh, uh but like functional tests are so sad where you need to like pop open a browser with uh xvfb and then send web driver commands to it in order to try to click around like they're so slow there's they have so many uh, like false positives and timeouts and problems and chrome automatically updates and breaks all your tests and web driver implementations are shady between the different but like there's so many problems with that that there's this new world of writing like unit tests where you can kind of mount uh components directly into memory and then uh like kind of write functional style tests as um, uh, something that doesn't need a browser uh, at all. Um, and nice. it's a little different than running like JS DOM, which is like uh, essentially providing it a, a, a subset of a browser. And you can do a lot of the tests that you used to do very slowly, very um, non-deterministically with browsers uh, as a unit test where you say like, well, if this function, it, like if a click is applied here and then uh, this the DOM should then reflect these different things, and and you can test all that stuff um, like on a per component basis very quickly without spinning up a whole browser. And so Jest is is good at um, at helping you manage those types of things. Um, in general, if you're writing React code, uh, there's a pretty Jest would be your default choice, even if it's not. I, I doubt it has like more than. 70% saturation, but that's that's pretty good. There's still quite a few other options that, that people use, Ava and, and a few different things. Just cool. as, I think, coming around and winning the default choice for testing because Facebook wrote it and supports it yeah. and stuff. So th- is this one just bundled with the new release? Yeah, so just, the- just used to be bundled. It's just a new version. And so there are new things. Um, the, the highlights include immersive watch mode, uh, better snapshot format. So snapshots are where you can say like, once this is rendered with this data, the HTML should look exactly like X, and then it can test. So it's kind of like whenever people do screenshots with uh, like CSS frameworks and stuff like that, yeah, and say yeah, yeah. it needs to be pixel perfect. You can do the same thing with the HTML output of your components. Uh, you can just say snapshot. Like I don't need to write down what it should look like, but I know this is good snapshot. It shouldn't change unless I change that module. And so if some dependency accidentally starts changing your HTML, you'll get a test failure. Um, awesome. And then just like the output and uh, and stuff, APIs for, for new new stuff from React. So um, you also get automatic coverage reporting, which is which is good. Cool. So it's kind of just like enforcing good practices on you anyway. Yeah, and whenever you do a Create React app, it'll start you up with a test directory with a test already written uh, and imported and building and all that kind of stuff to where it's like, really, you as soon as you write your thing, it's a very fast and easy example on how to start writing tests for your uh, thing without needing to learn about how to configure Jest. That's awesome. Yeah. One, one tough thing, um, if 
for for writing web apps is is if you want to write tests in the same JavaScript that you write your components and stuff in, uh, but if you're using Babel and Webpack and stuff in order to compile everything down, then you start needing to like watch and compile your test directory, which is cool. But then like while you're writing your app, you're spending an additional you know three seconds every time you do a save compiling your your thousands of tests that you've written. And so like there there needs to be good configuration on whether you're kind of in a mode where tests run or get compiled or whether it's important for them to get recompiled and, and most of that's handled to where you're not doing like unnecessary work as you're working and then your tests can still be in like new cool uh, good ES6e Babel-y stuff that that you write your other components in. You don't have to switch context to write like old older school javascript for your tests. Great. So move, moving off of testing, because I think it's boring. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> Fair. Um, so I, I see that one of the things that it also does is it just, uh, it adds a service worker, like automatically, and has yeah. an offline caching strategy, which like, I think is great that service worker support and PWAs are like landing in frameworks like this. Yeah. I'm terrified at the idea of the framework just like implementing a caching strategy that I don't understand. <laughs> um, Sure. Because like I, I've spent so much time fighting caches, like yeah, it's just kind of worrisome. So yeah, I put a service worker on TXJS uh, early uh, on the TXJS website in 2015, I think. Uh, and if someone had hit it between uh, like 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. a week before the conference, then they would still have be be being served that version of the website for the rest <laughs> of their lives unless they like went in and cleared the the service worker uh, so like there there's definitely some danger to where like you can get yourself in a place where you accidentally cache everything and you, there's no way to break out and that can be unfortunate but uh, i haven't dug deep into their service worker implementation but my gut is that if you don't do anything weird uh it should it should be fine and if you do something weird uh sorry uh, yeah, I, 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 my gut is that is that it's fine for normal stuff, and uh, you'll probably need to turn it off for for crazier stuff. Or if you want like something like it's probably very baseline and very uh, lazy in the sense that it uh, isn't going to do too much because it can't assume as much. But if you think about just like a caching strategy of like, have we seen this before? Like, you think about a caching strategy. If we've seen it before, return the old one. Uh, and then go grab the new. Always go grab the new one. And if there is a new one that's different than the old one, go ahead and also send up another event for uh, hey new data. And if, if that's kind of built into the idea of how you render things, which a lot of the React stuff is like, as things change, like it, it automatically updates, then it can kind of be a good default strategy. Oh yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Like React has a lot of understanding about the individual components, so it knows if re-renders need to happen when the backend updates. That's that's interesting. Yeah, there's some nice uh, synchronicity in in some of that stuff, uh, I think. But yeah, it's not going to be a silver bullet, but I, I think it's pretty good. Something uh, Ember CLI doesn't have service worker, but they have uh, by default they serve uh, like whenever you do Ember serve. Uh, a uh, what is it a CSP a, a con- content security policy which I think is a really cool default to have just to like uh, make that a more widely used thing just like beat by default XSS is harder in Ember apps than it is in in, in other apps because they uh, do CSP and so I I really like these 
uh, toolkit style CLI uh, helper things, doing things like solid generic defaults that maybe aren't the best version of them, but maybe get people thinking about service workers or get people thinking about CSP. And we'll work in, in all the simple cases as well. Interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> you sound skeptical, but I got I, I no, no, no. I, I think just in in general, like on the surface, this looks like a like a boilerplate generator, and <laughs> it's actually very much not just a boilerplate generator. It's, yeah, I mean, it it's is like that an, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, obviously, it's like a living boilerplate uh, generator, kind of. Um, yeah, yeah. That's that's intense, though. Well, it's, yeah. it's a. It's a boilerplate generator, but it keeps on helping. Like it just helps you continue on developing the app. It doesn't just like run once and then you like don't use it, right? Because it helps you put together all of the tools that you need for it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like all of this stuff feels like it's a uh, great grandchild of Rails, where Rails would uh, uh, there's a word for it. Uh, it would generate code. Uh, like you would just say Rails new controller. Scaffolding. Uh, yeah, scaffolding. scaffolding. That, that's the yeah, one. That's yeah. the word. Uh and it definitely feels kind of like scaffolding. And there's a bit of scaffolding like in the initial like create React app. Um, but I think it focuses less on generating code for you and more about providing tools and examples and kind of a baseline for you to build on. And then allowing like the kind of one of the things of scaffolding is like once it generates that code, that code is is stuck there forever uh, in that format. Whereas I think more of the strategy with Create React App is that uh, hopefully it scaffolds little enough to where it can update those things that it it has generated like on the fly. I think the last thing that's interesting um, in the uh, we- uh, not Webpack uh, Create React App 1.0 release is the uh, code splitting stuff, and that's part of Webpack uh, as well. But there's a standard that no one uses um, for dynamic imports. Uh, it mixes uh, async await with import. Um, and I hadn't looked into it much because there was, wasn't really a great place to use it. But it's like it's part of the standards track. Uh, um, and like I don't know where it is in that. But um, you can have an async function and then you can import something. It, you can do await import. And and then that will automatically build into a separate, like all the dependencies of the thing that you're asynchronously importing uh, can be so built I, into a separate uh, bundle. Yeah, I, th- I think that you're, you're complicating it a, a little bit. Like it, it's a piece of syntax that allows you to, with a function, do the same thing that you do with syntax for importing, right? So, and the nice thing about that is that at some point in the future, which is like not part of the you know initial um, interpretation phase of the browser, you can say import this module. Um, and then what you're saying is that like now we we can actually use that for code splitting because you can say, oh well, like these these little pieces that you don't necessarily need, we can now import dynamically using the same kind of sure. standard module system, right? I guess I was complicating it because it would be invalid syntax to just throw an import. Uh, there so it needs right. to be like supported right. syntax it's not just like something you could do before but people didn't know about it, it i think it is it like <laughs> yeah, yeah, awaiting yeah. an import is not uh like it needs to be statically analyzable or or at least be um known to be a part of it that isn't statically analyzable because it doesn't need to be so you know something like that yeah. uh yeah. and that's why i think it's part of the standards track uh to, to do asynchronous imports um like like this and so Yep. Create React App supports this in order to do 
uh, bundles, which is a huge part of like the PWA community's problem. Like you know, if you follow Alex Russell or whatever, you'll you'll know that your JavaScript that you're serving by default is far too large. Um, and so if you can do some, if you can turn on HTTP2 and then do something like a handful of these asynchronous imports for large portions of your application, I think it could go a long way to like loading far less JavaScript uh, on load, which is which is really nifty. I think this is such a good direction to like automatically for like give to people. I hope they use it in the baseline example that they generate. You know, that way people use it. Yeah, sort sort of following on with your talk about scaffolding, it seems like the big difference between this and what Rails does is, like you said, Rails will generate a lot of boilerplate code. This seems to generate a lot of configuration, right? right. Like we have, like like <laughs> the joke about Webpack is that like you you only write one Webpack configuration and then you copy paste it into every yeah. new project. I mean that's a um, make but, file joke, but yeah, 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 exactly, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but I think also like. Um, like you were saying, one of the things that this does is really standardize, you know, wh- what is the the proper path for writing a React app with all these different configurations. And so this allows you to sort of add features over time to that configuration um, without trying to get, you know, thousands and thousands of developers to update their, you know, this particular line in their Webpack config. Right. It's a, it's a noble cause. And other people are doing it, like Ember CLI and stuff are, are doing this well uh, as well. Like when you upgrade these like new world configuration CLI tools, uh, you get instant improvements in your applications, which is cool. Uh, I, I really like, like everything still works and now it's 20% faster. It's like whenever Ember did the Glimmer update, all you did was upgrade Ember CLI and suddenly everything was using Glimmer. It was all supported unless you're doing something weird, you know, and and suddenly your website rendered faster. And I think that's a cool world like for, I think that's a good goal for these uh, well-used frameworks to 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 go after. Yeah, definitely. One thing I can't wait to see is not compiling down to ES5 anymore, but compiling down to you know a set of features that are actually mostly sure. supported. Because there's a lot of performance benefits to like arrow functions are faster than regular functions in in V8, and yep. for the most part, you know, people that are working with compilers aren't getting those performance benefits right now. Yeah. You can choose, you can configure that, uh, not in Create React App, but in a generic Babel config, you can say, these are the things, this is the target uh, set of features that I want to compile down to. So it's certainly possible, but I don't think many people uh, go that far. Well, and also there's only one minifier that supports it as well. So, <laughs> uh, fair. Um, and, and, and it's still under really active development. So that's one of the things that you kind of lose. Anyway, I think that we're about time for another break. Um, we're going to take a short little break here and then when we come back we're going to talk about the project of the week if you're looking for trusted freelance talent ready to join your team right now i mean like within the week call upon my friends at toptal t-o-p-t-a-l.com and as a listener of the show you might actually be one of those developers or designers looking for awesome freelance independent contractor type opportunities where you can still be a remote worker you can still have the freedom you have right now which means you can travel anywhere you can be anywhere and do what you do we love top top they've been supporting this show for a very long time they're really good friends of ours if you want a personal introduction i'd be glad to give that to you email me adam at changelaw.com otherwise head to toptal.com that's t-o-p-t-a-l.com to learn more tell them adam from changelog sent you and now back to the show 
because our project of the week this week is Electron. Um, there's been so much stuff about Electron. I'm sure that we've talked about Electron apps on here. Um, I know that the changelog did like a whole episode as well. Um, just for, for some quick background, uh, Electron is a way to build desktop applications for Mac, Windows, and Linux uh, using Node.js and browser technologies. So you, if you can make a website and use Node.js, you can write an Electron app. Um, yep. And it's just, it was uh, originally broken out of the Atom editor um, that GitHub was doing. It was initially called sort of, I think, Atom Shell. Uh, and then uh, Jessica Lord and some of the, the good people at GitHub uh, moved it into its own project. And now it's really taken off. So yeah. And some of, the, some of the Electron apps that people might know of is like Hyper and Slack and something that we talked about recently, which is WebTorrent and stuff like that. Visual Studio Code. Um, which is my current editor of choice as well. Um, yeah, it's w- one of the interesting things that I've, I've seen about it is that um, I think a lot of people initially viewed it as like, oh, I can take my website and turn it into a desktop app. That's sort of what the Slack app does. Um, but I've, or, you know, I can write desktop apps, but it's a pain to do them cross browser. So I will write them in this instead. But what I've seen lately are applications that I don't think would even exist if it wasn't for, you know, having unrestricted access to Node.js um, and and then just being able to put a, a browser front end on that, like the, just the size of the ecosystem is so amazing. Um, the, you know, MongoDB has like a new DB admin thing um, that's like a, a desktop app with Electron. Voltra is like this new music app that is like way prettier and nicer than iTunes. Um, and and that is just, you know, because like they they knew Node.js really well. They can really dig into the, the nitty gritty there. Um, and they need like the, the a lot of the stuff that they're doing with data storage and syncing and stuff. They need that performance, that layer. They couldn't just do it as a pure web app. So it's awesome. Have you built anything with Electron? Yes, yes. Um, I've, I've, I mean, I've gone through, I, I wrote a little um, kind of browser viewer uh, on top of IPFS because I wanted to to play around with IPFS. So I made like a little like drag and drop thing. Um, I have, I'm about halfway done with like a desktop version of Roll Call um, that uses electron as well um and then i pulled down and and just worked with a couple projects like um i i dug into the brave code at one bait at one time uh, which is also an electron app and uh or it was back then i think now they're on their fork of electron um and there was another app that i i can't remember that i i sent a pull request to and so i I had to pull it down that way and all of them have been great i mean i'm comfortable with node um, so it's, it's a really kind of comfortable place to be, to, to develop in, but what about yeah, you? I mean, I mean, I'm super comfortable with node too. And electron like has always been something that, you know, I've known existed as a thing, but like, is there anything extra that people that already know how to build like web applications with node would need to know in order to get up and running with electron or does electron kind of like just wrap around all that stuff? I mean, it, it wraps around all of it, but also I, I think, like, I, I don't think that we can underestimate, like, how much stuff there is in NPM right now, like how many modules. And um, to make, like, a lot of web apps work, a ton of what you do is that you build these back-end services that just, you know, talk to some <laughs> something that is, like, has less security around it and more of the Node ecosystem, and then you push that to the browser in some way. Um, and 
I've seen a lot of people just get up and running so quickly on their ideas because they can just store directly on the file system and access every module in NPM and then put a web front end on it and not have to spin up a backend service, not have to deal with, you know, a front end and a backend where they just like kind of have it all mashed together um, in this environment in Electron. Alex. Yeah. Have you made anything? <laughs> uh, in, in Adam? No. Um... I my experience with Atom or, or in Electron uh, has been installing the uh, Electron bin or uh, like actually we used Electron in order to do screenshots for our uh, CSS library visual diffs because it was easier to just uh, run Electron cross browser render something and then use uh, the stuff to take a screenshot. And then not even reload pages, just inject the new components into the same page. And then you could take like a ton of screenshots all in a row and, and it ended up being really fast. I think there's an open source library that we have. I can, I can find the leak. Uh, but yeah, so I used it for a pretty different thing. But uh, uh, yeah, like that, that, that may be an interesting use case of it. It's just like it's a cross-browser environment to run HTML in uh, headlessly, um, which is kind of cool. Yeah. What was the thing that, um, oh, I, I, this is going to be a horrible, uh, it's going to showcase my horrible memory. What was the thing that Adobe had that was allowing you to make apps easier? It might have just been like in Macs or something. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they had, they had an editor and then they had, um, yeah, the name of, of the stuff, but it was like kind of. Dreamweaver 2000 or whatever. Uh, well, no, could, no, not 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 Dreamweaver. It was one that actually let you get um, some kind of. Obviously, I guess it's not oh, as Adobe notable. Air. Yes, Adobe Air. So, Thank like you, Corbin, you in the channel. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> okay, cool. So, Adobe Flex and Flex, I think, is what it eventually became, right? Flex was the framework uh, that you you wrote in, and you wrote okay. that. Air was the container that it would run in. Okay, okay. Hold on, the cops are coming again. Um. <laughs> it was all flash-based. Uh, action script. The cops are coming to arrest Rachel for talking about Adobe Flash. Oh, okay, cool. So, I mean, I remember when that came out, and I was like, whoa, this is rad. And, I mean, Electron seems like... I know that people are talking about it a lot, but I feel like people should be talking about it more. <laughs> um, I know that's just like a hand wavy thing to say, but like, why aren't people that are making like pretty rad apps just not also like by default making them in Electron as well? Does because anybody know? The, because the web <laughs> is important, an important distribution platform and uh, defaulting to native applications. Uh, is maybe not the best strategy to reach the most people. Well, well I, I mean, I think, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, like, you... there, yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> I, I think like, uh, if, if you, if you talk to people that have apps that people use like in their like daily, like, like any app that you use for kind of business or anything that you open up daily, people prefer desktop applications. True. Um, like, they don't you have know, like, I, 
Well, they don't have to, but if you talk to like Slack, for instance, right? Like they have ostensibly the exact same thing on their on the website as they do on the desktop, and the desktop has a lot more engagement um, because yeah. But getting to people initially, asking them to you know before they've seen any value, download this thing, it is a bit of a stretch for for a lot of use cases. Um, but I think that once once you have people's attention and you really want to up their engagement, that's where desktop applications are really useful. I agree. There we go. Well, we 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 still value the desktop. It looks like, um, <laughs> but yeah, there's been some great uh, articles lately. Um, one, so GitHub actually they have these GitHub desktop apps that they that they built a while back, uh, and they had not actually moved them to Electron yet. And so um, they wrote up their experience of you know some C sharp and Objective C developers that are used to writing you know native applications for Windows and Mac. What their experience was like, you know, moving to Electron and, and doing Electron stuff. It was it's pretty interesting. I I recommend it. Um, yeah. All right. Let's move on to our picks. All right. Everybody got their picks locked and loaded. Yeah, but mine's a cop out. Okay. Well, we'll start with your cop out then, it's and then we'll create, go up from there. React app 1.0, baby. Oh, 1. shut 0. up! You can't pick the project of the week. That's like cheating. Okay. Webpack two. <laughs> oh, Tell us about Webpack two. What's in it? Uh, tree shaking. <laughs> so, um, so I. All right, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go on a little bit of a tangent here, and you're gonna get mad about it. But I think that if you need tree shaking, you're dependent on some anti patterns. I don't think that we should have these grab bag modules with a bunch of other properties in them that you should be shaking out. I think that we should be using modules that do one thing and only export one thing, and then you don't need to tree shake. There you go. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it's an amazing rebuttal. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> anyway, uh, my my pick of the week. <laughs> Were you gonna say something else? Go ahead, Alex. I was gonna say that I I agree uh, to an extent <laughs> uh, that if you if you write something that is a little bit does a few too many things, then tree shaking becomes a crutch. But I also think that like take a substack something, take a set of tools that are only substack. And you'll still get some benefit from tree shaking in the end. It won't be massive, but might as well do it. Um, so uh, I think tree shaking becomes even more uh, cool when it when it can the dead code removal be like types plus. Um, well, so I, I guess uh, you guys were gone when we we made this the project of the week. It was uh, what was that thing? Uh, code code uh, code something came out recently. Facebook. Uh, it was the project. Anyways, it tries to like code unroll and like uh, pre-compute things that are already like available to compute at, at runtime uh, or at compiler time. Uh, and so things like that are also going to be massive, like to where like there's an if statement inside of a substack module and there's no way that's going to run based on the configuration uh, and therefore it can be compiled out. And that's tree shaking like and it should be fine. Use it all. Use everything. Use every minifier at the same time. <laughs> all right. Whew. Rachel, what's your pick? <laughs> so so my pick of the week is a talk from JS Confu that just happened that I unfortunately 
did not get to see in person, but it's from uh, Anjana Vakil, and it's about immutable data structures for functional JS. And she just like explains it in such a really simplified, easy to understand way for people that don't really understand what, you know, immutability or mutability or functional like programming looks like aka me and so like she just gives visuals that explains like how nodes work and how like you can do different things with it and how it like you can have the arrays structured in um well i guess that's what mutability and immutability is but she explains it in a way that makes sense and she talks about it in context of um David Nolan's Mori library and Facebook's immutable JS library and shows examples from both so that you're able to like one, understand the concept and see how different libraries are handling that kind of thing. Um, So yeah, if anybody else was wondering about that kind of thing, there's a link to it and it's pretty great. Awesome. Earlier in the episode, we talked about features that we don't uh, use my wish is that there was a way to use immutable js as uh like the default in the syntax like like there could be a babel plugin for just like immutable versions of things and there actually is a spec um i think uh seb markage uh uh proposed immutable data structures to ecmo but i think it, it's dead and it's not going to go and uh, it makes me sad but i really want to use immutable js but i really hate changing the syntax uh, for everything mm. I just want. I want native immutable data structures. And so that's a good example of something that I don't use that I wish I could. Cool. Mm. Cool. Okay. Um, my pick is a book. Um, it's actually a really old book. It came out like in the 80s, I think. Um, 84. Crazy. Um, but it's called Hackers. It is not uh, I've seen the, the movie. for the film Hackers. It is not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no rollerblading. Um, you know, Hackers is about the kind of origins of hacker culture, which eventually kind of became early technology and open source culture. Um, so the, the, you, you can skip the third part. The book is in three parts. You can, the third one does not hold up. Um, but the, the first one is, is basically from the Tech Model Railroad C- Club at MIT in the late 50s and early 60s that started using computers in a very different way um, and how their kind of culture evolved and became the AI lab um, at MIT, which, you know, spawned a bunch of other AI labs and was like all of the early kind of programming culture came out of, um, out of what was going on there. What's the the second chapter about? So, so hold on. The second chapter (laughs) is about uh, kind of the homebrew computer club and early Apple and early computing, like in, in the Bay area and also how, um, a bunch of like really kind of crazy counterculture political figures, um, like also informed that culture and what they were doing, and and that's super interesting. The third section is about uh, the the gaming industry in like this in Sierra and all those companies that were like in the early '80s, and and it was more of like a at the time it was like oh, and then this is what people are doing right now, but it really doesn't connect very well to the other parts, and it really doesn't hold up as like like th- this particular section of computing is not nearly as influential as these other ones, like in hindsight, right? Um, but also, I will. There is there's some appendices. One of the appendices is called the Last Hacker, and it's about the last person in the MIT Media Lab, or sorry, the MIT AI Lab, um, that is kind of 
the keeper of the flame for hacker culture. And it's it's about Richard Stallman before he started the GNU project and before there was even a such thing as copyleft licenses or a GPL to argue about. Um, and it is fascinating <laughs> um, and explains so much. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've been reading, I've been trying to read a lot about kind of early hacker culture and, and how the counterculture movement kind of played into all this stuff. And uh, this is like w- one of the, the best books to, to really dig into it. So it's by Steve Levy. It's called Hackers. There you go. My pick is the movie Sneakers. Oh, that's a good movie. That's oh my it's god! Really the, it's really the only tech movie that holds up. <laughs> really. River, River Phoenix. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh man, yeah, that's a good one. That's a really good one. Some some Robert Redford. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. Anyway, anyway. Great talking with y'all. I think that we're just about done now. Uh, rate us on iTunes. Check us out at changelog.com slash jsparty. Um, you can get into our Slack. You can catch us live every Friday at uh, noon Pacific time and something in other time zones. And thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right, that wraps up this episode of JS Party. Hope you enjoyed it. We record this show live every Friday at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern. So if you want to listen live, you can head to changelaw.com slash community. Get in Slack. Hang out with us in real time. Special thanks to our sponsors, Century and TopTal. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. This episode was edited by Jonathan Youngblood. And the theme music for JS Party is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.